Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor-Whiteway. As adults, we've long ago forgotten what it feels like to see the world through a child's eyes and maybe, long ago, forgotten the power of this. This week we talked to Dr May Lean Carlson, a counselling and community psychologist from Norway, who has worked with Dr Gail Sinitsky, a counselling psychologist from the UK, to create Children Her. We talked to her about why listening to children is vital, children's views on the coronavirus, and how they can add to our understanding of the world. May, welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. We're going to talk about your work today with Children Heard, but I was hoping you could start off by just talking about what got you interested in this area. Thank you so much for inviting us and inviting Children Heard. I am talking to you from Norway. I'm a community psychologist in Norway. That means I'm working with the local government here. I work uh, with uh, school nurses and schools and uh, uh, physiotherapists and midwives and everybody sort of all services uh, organized around children in the community here and I've done that for the past six years and before that I worked in West London uh, for a few years in a charity there for children and families and I'm very passionate about listening to children I think something very new and exciting happens when we uh, recognize that we see things from an adult lens and start feeling curious about what it looks like from a child's point of view something very new comes into the room and into the process when we do that. So that's something I try to do at work as a community psychologist and then also through this initiative called Children Heard, which is what we're talking about today. I really like that idea of seeing things through the children's lens. As adults we look so much through our own lens and forget how children see things. And you mentioned your project Children Heard. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, yes, Children Heard is quite, it's a new project really. It, it's Gail Sinitsky, the counselling psychologist in London, and myself who started this at the beginning of the pandemic this year. Although it's been in our minds for a while that we wanted to do something like that. The purpose of the project became so clear to us when the pandemic hit and um, when lockdown started in March and we realised that there was so much information out there for parents on how to help the children, to inform their children about the pandemic. Um, it was striking, it was, it was produced, that kind of material was being produced at all levels, locally, nationally, internationally, and it was very helpful at that stage. But we also noticed there was, it was a complete lack, really, of focus on listening to children in that information giving or in that sort of taking care and safeguarding children. So just stopping to hear what how this impacted them, what they thought about the pandemic, how they experienced it, what opinions they had about it. Um, I think we just saw that right away that that was going to be lost perhaps in the upheaval or in the certainty and, and that came with the pandemic. And actually what we started doing was an activity 
um, we developed an activity for parents shaped as an interview with good questions that we thought that children could um, do with their parents uh, where parent was the researcher and the child was the expert and this would help to have a really good conversation for the parents and carers to tune into their children and then this developed we thought it would be really interesting to hear what children said about this and so uh, it um, we developed it into a survey an online survey inviting uh, children and carers to share what came out of that conversation and that's how it started in that sense it's a very unusual research because it didn't start as a research it started as an a conversation and intervention really and we were always always really mindful that that's how we wanted it to be we wanted it to be that children were heard by their care at an individual level and then we could also use that information collectively and have children heard at a societal level by collecting that information and this idea of the children interviewing the parents switching around i guess what we're expecting that's really interesting. What gave you that idea? Uh, well, that was because we wanted the children to be heard by the carer, first okay. of all. So that was, that was kind of trying to promote the importance of listening to children uh, with the carers. In this way, we were able to reach children that were younger than 13, sort of primary school, even preschoolers, because parents could do that conversation. I think this is one of the stumbling blocks of listening to children's voices is uh, the, the question of how do we reach children because we need to reach through their parents and that's becoming, and through safeguarding concerns and all that, it's quite of a challenge. So by doing that, we kind of stumbled on this, what we now think is a really good way of um, accessing or engaging uh, young children. It has to happen through the parents. It just seems so obvious to me now that that's the way it has to do. And uh, we have to embrace that this conversation will be a, a, a product of that relationship and that encounter as well. We had very rich data coming from the younger children. And I think maybe a stranger would not have that kind of conversation with four or five, six-year-olds. So you've spoken already about how it's really important to hear children so that we can attune as parents to what they're saying and as other people that work with them. What are the other things that make it really important to listen to children for you? Uh, yes, because uh, one side, like you say, is the, for us was that promoting that children needed to be heard also by their carers. Um, so that was one side of it. But there's the other side, which is more the, the research side, perhaps, or at least the, the societal level that we really wanted to, to contribute to lifting children's voices. And a bit like you said before we started the podcast, which was there just seems to be a lack of initiatives uh, that have done that, that have, and, and I'm talking about the younger children in particular, that, have, that were sort of capturing their experiences. We talk a lot about the impact of the pandemic on children, and yet there is such a scarcity of children's own accounts or reports about their lived experience through the pandemic. And we, we, um, we noticed that. I think many some attempts or some good initiatives as well at listening to children often have very narrowly defined questions. It could be multiple choice. 
uh, of course they're easier and um, it makes for better they make for better reports and a sort of overall view perhaps than qualitative data but it also doesn't really capture children's own words and how important this is to them and, and in what way it is important to them so we wanted to it to be mainly qualitative and um, there were 16 questions and and 14 of them are qualitative so it's very very open-ended question and we wanted it to be creative so there was a creative uh, activity in there as well for children to contribute with a drawing or painting or something else um, a picture of modeling something and uh, we saw I mean something that I'm struck by is the lack of infrastructure of communication between children and those people in power in our society it's like every time people in power, whether it's politicians or policymakers or leaders, um, every time they want to do something that is important to children, change something, create something, there isn't really anything there already, a system in place to directly communicate with children. It kind of needs to be reinvented and done and uh, started again and again. And also it doesn't allow for a feedback system. It doesn't allow for conversation and dialogue is just kind of one off asking children and reporting back and I think surely there must be better ways of communicating with children and hearing them even for those who yeah work sort of far removed from children in their everyday lives so this is perhaps part of the vision of children heard the larger vision is to create such an infrastructure uh, and using creative uh, ways of doing that I think the traditional systems might they're doing what they're doing and they and they have that value and I think we're, we're wanting to try and think, figure out, find out new ways of doing this. And we talk a lot about children being autonomous, about having a right to make their own decisions and we know that they're really well engaged with things like environmental issues. So this feels like another place where we should listen to them, should use their views. Mm, yes. And also it prepare, just to prepare children for democracy, for being engaged in, in good communities uh, and building our country. And also because children have a particular lens that we kind of lose as we grow old. <laughs> and we need that lens. It's very valuable to us in the processes that we were engaged in when creating the, the kind of society we want, to live, we want to live in. So we've spoken a lot about listening to young people. What do you think we risk if we don't listen to our children and young people? The societal level, I think we risk um, losing impact and money, uh, actually. I mean, that's a language that society understands because we're putting a lot of money into creating services and, um, and institutions aimed at children. And if we don't listen to them and involve them in that process, we just lose out on and making it effective, as effective as it can be. And then um, at a more individual level, I think the, the risk there, the potential costs are more, the major ones I think um, is emotional. It's an emotional cost. I mean, it's a human right to be listened to. Children need that. They need to be listened to. And um, especially for children who may be in need of extra support where adults come um, gather around the child to create that extra type of support. I think it's so important that children are invited to that, to those meetings, to the table, to hear their point of view, to to be part of creating what is a good intervention for them. 
And remember, this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, because I, I myself, as a, as a, uh, at the age of seven, um, had uh, an intervention for bedwetting. Uh, we had a uh, loss in our family. Somebody died in our family, a little brother, Sakota. He was very, almost newborn, but it was a big thing for our family at that time. And within uh, the next year, I started bedwetting. And uh, I was given an intervention based on classical conditioning, which was, this is nearly 35 years ago. So of course, a lot has changed since then. But at that time, I was, I was given a intervention based on con classical conditioning, which, which is basically an alarm ringing when I'm peeing my bed. And then after a while, my brain is taught to wake up on my own. So it's a way of sort of rewiring my brain to stop bedwetting. And it, it solved the problem. And it solved the problem for me because it was a problem for me. But I think back at that and I think, oh, what a shame. I hope there were adults around who was curious about my experience of life, of who, why this was coming about, whether there was support, more kinds of support or other kinds of support that was needed in our life, in my life and in our life. And so I'm really, I just think it's just because we're, children are humans, they're not robots that we go in and solve a problem. It's not that we necessarily have solved the problem if a child stops misbehaving, you know, or causing a problem to other people. We really need to think of children as human beings with their own experiences and thoughts, and they need to be invited into those conversations, and we need to be curious about how they experience things, rather than thinking problem-solving over their heads. Mm -hmm. So I think um, the risk, what we risk if we don't um, bring people on board and listen to them is I think we, we, list, we, we risk that children stop listening to themselves, actually, because they don't think it's of value. Mm. I think that's happened to a lot of us growing up, that we didn't really listen to ourselves. And that's something we had to learn or unlearn. And what are the unique features that make children really important to listen to? Yes, I think um, they have often a vulnerability to them which is important often we think of that as a weakness but vulnerability is actually very um as a real human condition we are vulnerable mm -hmm. we see this in the pandemic how vulnerable we are and to include that when we are making decisions and thinking about how to implement and how to run things and how we're going to create it it's actually very important i think uh, and a real gift uh, they're often um, asking questions of what we take for granted. Very helpful. They have often a very relational approach, which is also really important. We had, we've had three press conferences for children here in Norway during the pandemic, where the Prime Minister and the Minister of uh, Education and Minister of Families have um, taken questions from children directly. And those were real questions from real children. You know, the kind of thing like, can I celebrate my birthday next week and... Uh, when is this going to stop and how did it happen? Questions like that. And uh, there were also questions like, um, how is it running a country? Is it really difficult when there's a pandemic? They were asking the prime minister, how do you keep healthy and strong? Are you okay? <laughs> do you get to sleep? Questions like that. And even one child was asking, she was eight years old, and she asked, what can I do to help? So I think these questions, they really represent to me they just inspired me to think oh my gosh we need to take care of each other and I need to think about what I can do in this this is really something we are experiencing together and during this pandemic this mobilizing of 
relationships of communities of caring for each other has been so instrumental in fighting it and i think it was a real opportunity for our politicians that come across as sort of strong and and perhaps a bit impersonal for them to show their vulnerability and to show that they you know they were humans and trying to make right decisions and they were working really hard and it's it helped me as well to be sort of more loyal mm -hmm. in a way or trying you know i think that was just so clear to me that we need the children's perspective in this fight against the pandemic, not just because we needed them to obey by our rules, but because we needed their gifts in the process. I think those are such nice examples of how children's thinking challenges the status quo are just things that as adults we would never ask. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think it would be so different if there was an adult there sort of saying, what questions are you going to ask? And that's not really a clever enough question. Or how can you rephrase that? So, you know, it was real children. You could just tell that these were the concerns of children. I think when you um, dare to let them in as they are, even though it's not something we usually do, I think something good, interesting happens. So going back to Children Heard, can you tell us a little bit more about the project who are you collecting the data from and how did you do it so um it, it belongs to the story of of this project that we were able to partner up with three unicef offices so in norway slovenia and iceland it started with just asking them if they would be um so kind to promote the survey on their website and they were you know keen this is what happens when things are turned upside down you just have these amazing encounters and new partnerships you never thought would happen. And so we um, decided that this would be a good thing for UNICEF to be part of, at least for those three uh, regional or, or national offices. And uh, that's how we reached a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We reached, we have um, five, over 500, about 503 responses, mainly from those four countries, Slovenia, Iceland, Norway, and then UK, but also from, uh, from beyond, from Europe and from beyond, from, we have from Philippines and India and Canada and Greece. And yeah, it was just amazing to hear from children. And our target group was primary school age children, uh, but we didn't really set any limit. We thought there could be siblings or there could be other reasons why children want to take part. And so we just left it open. So we have children from the age of three taking part to the age of 18 and combined with the fact that we had 16 questions 14 of which were qualitative you can imagine the kind of data we now have yeah. <laughs> we have just a, a very wide I mean, I mean there's so many smaller pieces of research in there really that we could focus on but um, what we've done so far we, we now uh, are in a partnership with the open university's children's research center to analyze because there's so much uh, data so much rich data we're um we're very pleased to be be working with them and we've done an initial analysis of um, of responses from children age 12 and below so we're yet to analyze um 13 upwards and what have you learned from the responses uh, something that struck me is very young children i mean four-year-olds have have something to say about what they think the pandemic will what they think the world will be like after the pandemic compared to before and they have thoughts about how the government should deal with the pandemic they were just i hadn't expected that such young children would be able to engage with these complex abstract questions at all so this was a been a real learning for me 
Um, and then another thing is how different the responses are. Even I sometimes just have these assumptions sneaking in, sort of having thinking I know what to expect from children. I know what they're going to say, and I, I guess I had this idea that they were all being they're all receiving the same information, mm-hmm. and they're all going through the same thing. And I was kind of thinking that the same thing is going to come up. They were very very different from. I don't care, this doesn't matter, it's all a hoax, they're exaggerating, to <laughs> to being really scared, being really scared for their own health and their own lives and the lives of their parents and family, to loving it because, you know, they get to spend more time at home and they're concerned about the climate and this is really helping the climate. Um, and many, many more, I mean, to being reflective, thinking about the value of life, sort of what, what, what this means in the larger picture. So, yeah, amazing bank of knowledge and insights. Mm-hmm. And just so grateful as well for all the children who, who participated in, and all parents who shared as well. So those are some of the things um, I take away from it. I mean, the drawings, um, we had drawings as part of the survey, uh, drawings, paintings, pictures that children can send us. And um, I was expecting that children in Norway they wouldn't have that because there hasn't been a big big um, death rate or we haven't had that sort of serious uh, situation here because of the lockdown and restrictions very early on but yet the pictures show tombstones and death and crying and hospitals and sort of resting peace and I was just and, and big threatening viruses that were dangerous and so this just struck me that yeah they're picking up not just on what's happening in their immediate life but they're connected to the world and to what's going on out there and to the news and mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways and that was also something that um, I think has come out of that um, survey. And as you were talking I was thinking firstly you know don't underestimate young people and children they clearly have views and can understand and take in what's going around them and secondly there's been a lot of discussion about how the virus is going to have the biggest impact potentially on on the children on the next generation and really those pictures you were talking about they link that research to lived experience and say yes this really is having an impact on our children young people and that's so powerful Mm. And so important that that gets to be part of history, you know, how children experienced it. And to bring this back to schools, I've been quite inspired in my work to think about how schools can use images like you have to help children describe what they can't put into words. And I was wondering if you had any other thoughts or ideas about how teachers and schools can use what you found or your process to help children talk about their experience of coronavirus. Yeah, I think that is one. I mean, I'm sure there's so many great ideas out there from teachers who are actually working in schools. And I'm sure with the, just accessing the right kind of Facebook groups or um, there must be a lot of amazing ideas. So, yeah, I, I, I'm mindful that I don't myself work in schools and sort of know what the pressures of being a teacher is like or what, what it's like to stand in front of a group of children and um, and having sort of a learning outcomes that in mind that you want to achieve. So with that in mind, I do have some thoughts um, about that. I uh, like you say that using art is a really good way to, um, or creative uh, activities is a really good way for each individual child to sort of process, think about, create a story that they want to tell 
parallel to each other. I don't think it would be possible. It would be difficult to contain and facilitate. Everybody were going to tell their own story to everybody else. But to have sort of um, uh, open enough creative task where each child gets to sort of say something about what they take away from the pandemic, maybe what they've learned or what they've noticed or what they've, what they've experienced is most important to them and um, and to allow them to express that on a piece of paper yet together with the others children it's a way of of doing this uh, together and 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 there's a possibility of sharing their stories if, if it's going up on the wall or however they want to share that afterwards and of course it could be a way for teachers to also attuned to the children to have a sense of uh, what the journey has been like for them what they are left with perhaps there are children that are in need of some extra support and this would be one way of uh, connecting with the children during a period where that connection has been so changed and perhaps fragile so i think uh, art work or art activities is one really powerful and, and good way of expressing to each other or sharing each other's stories and of course, it's possible. We have schools taking part um, and sending their pictures to us and we put that up in our gallery, even if the children are not um, participating in the survey. So just by, it is possible as well to sort of have, if children wanted to have their picture put up on a gallery that is available to anybody to see. They want to have that, uh, that people to witness their story. And in the UK, we're very much still in the midst of the pandemic. So I guess one of the key messages is to keep listening. That is so true. Yeah, I would say to, to sort of replace assumptions, which I know we all have, I, me included, with curiosity, really trying to be curious about what this is like for, for each individual child, because it's going to be different. It's, it's a much more exciting place to be, you know, being curious than knowing everything. <laughs> May, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about your research. It's been really refreshing to hear from the child's perspective. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to read more about Children Heard, you can follow the link to the website in the podcast description. If you like this episode, then please do subscribe and you can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum. You can email us on theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.